Welcome to the Religion and Story podcast. Today's topic is the Messianic secret. Have you ever noticed when you're reading your Bible that Jesus seems to tell a lot of people that they are to not share what they've learned about him? Whether he's healed them or shared a truth with them, it often follows that he tells them to share the good news with nobody. Many scholars have looked at this idea of the Messianic secret, and there's a lot of different theories that surround it. And that's going to be the topic for today's podcast. Daniel, why don't you get us started by explaining some of these ideas? So the Messianic secret was actually coined by a guy named William Reed, and we'll talk more about him later. But his idea was that you see, especially in the book of Mark, this idea of a Messianic secret that Jesus is concealing his identity as the Christ or the Messiah. So to begin, let's look at a few passages that demonstrate this secret. If you were to turn to Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 18, you'd see a familiar passage that we've all heard before, we've all heard in sermons. It's Peter's confession. So let me read that. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others the, that you're one of the prophets of old who is risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So that's a familiar passage uh, where Peter confesses Jesus' identity. But now listen to that same story as told by Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. It says, And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Uh, you also see this idea of a messianic secret of keeping his identity hidden in a few other places throughout Mark. You see it in Mark chapter 1 uh, when Jesus cleanses the leper. In that story, he cleanses the leper and then he tells him, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. That's that phrase there at the beginning of verse 44. See that you say nothing to anyone. You also see it again in Jesus' parables. In Mark chapter 4 verse 11 you have the verse, And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables. So yeah, you see all across Mark in, in the confession of Jesus' identity and the stories about healing and even in Jesus' parables and his teachings. You have this idea where everything is hidden and the identity of Jesus is kept as a secret. And this is really strange. You don't see this that much outside of Mark. And it's not really clear why would Jesus do this. Well, one of the first things that people notice is that it's the the author Mark that is using these in his gospel and it it shows up I believe in John as well and and I, I should have uh, gone through beforehand to see all the different occurrences of where the messianic secret uh, pops up but everybody recognizes Mark because even in the I think you mentioned one that's in chapter 1 of Mark so yeah. he starts off from the very beginning saying that this is Jesus's ministry. There's a lot of things that make Mark different than the other Gospels and 
mainly because it starts off right in his ministry. We don't really see, there, there's no uh, nativity scene. There's not much about his youth, but it gets right into his ministry because the that that's the point of Mark's gospel is the the works that Jesus is doing and it's directing you which can kind of be misleading if you're not looking at maybe what the original Greek said it's not concurrent timeline but it's just saying these are the order the things that happened where there's some inconsistencies I know especially with the the wedding in Cana where Jesus turns the water to, to wine where that happened in Mark, and it makes you think that it was right off the coattails of him being baptized and in the wilderness and being tempted. And so there's a little bit of confusion there, but that's just how Mark words his Gospels. So just to put that on the plate, Mark's Gospel is different, and this is one of the things that makes it different. Uh, Having said that, the Messianic secret, if uh, you do a little bit of research on it, reads theory, and that's really what it is. It's a theory. You could probably take it and describe it differently than a theory. It is just a theme that was uncovered and made popular by William Reed. And this was in the early 1900s when it became popular and the term was coined at that time. But the Messianic secret is supported by facts. And so we're trying to actually understand why Jesus is telling these people not to go and it's kind of counter what you would think you're supposed to do as a Christian. You're supposed to go and share the good news and uh, tell other people about Christ, but he's telling people not to do that. What is the reason? Because his uh, his time has not yet come is uh, one of the responses that he gives. Jesus makes it clear that it is not his time or he does not want uh, the attention brought to him at that point, which brings us to another re- reoccurring theme that Jesus has, is that he withdraws himself from the crowd. When he is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, after he's done with that, I believe he withdraws himself and goes to pray. Uh, a lot of times he will withdraw himself and go out onto the water or withdraw himself to spend time uh, teaching the twelve that he is with. So there are many times where he is wanting to make his presence known, but at the same time, he is taking time to himself to do what, and this is another thing that's kind of up for debate or just for pondering, why did Jesus withdraw himself at certain times? Those are, those are interesting questions, though. I, I want to take a spin at this that goes back to Mark chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles or your web pages open to Mark chapter 8, it's the section right before the part that Daniel read. So Daniel read starting the section that starts in verse 27 and goes through 30, where Jesus confessed, uh, excuse me, Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus doesn't say that's the case, but he tells them not to tell anyone else, kind of inferring that you're correct, just don't tell anyone else. And then the next section, Jesus tells about his death and resurrection that are associated with the fact that he's the Christ. And yet Peter tries to rebuke Jesus for doing that. And so Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. A very, very famous passage. And in Matthew, those two passages are put together just the same. However, in the Gospel of Mark, 
the story that comes before these two stories is also interesting. This is the story that many people have heard before, but you might not associate with what Jesus says in the next section. So in the verses immediately preceding Peter's confession, Jesus heals the blind man at Bethsaida. And unlike most healings where Jesus touches the person and they're instantly healed, here Jesus spits in the man's eyes and asks him, do you see anything? And picking up in verse 24, and the man looked around and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not enter into the village. Once again, putting forward this idea of don't tell anyone, you know, don't tell all of the people about this healing that you've just received. But what's interesting here is that there is a progressive healing that Jesus doesn't heal a man completely all at once. He heals him partially and then he heals him completely. Now, is he trying to make a point in the way that he's healing this man? Did this man only deserve a partial healing? I don't really think so. Likely, I think that Jesus is trying to make a larger point about his entire ministry. That there is one point at which we see Jesus uh, through, uh, through a glass dimly, to use other language there. We, we only see Jesus to some extent. We only see some of the purpose of what Jesus is doing. So perhaps a few verses later, when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, Perhaps Peter is only seeing part of what Jesus is doing. Peter thinks that Jesus is the Christ in the sense that he's come to restore the kingdom of Israel. When in fact, if Peter is going to completely understand and completely give his life over to be fully healed in his theology, then he also needs to understand the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and that those are necessary for Jesus to truly be the Christ. So Jesus doesn't want to tell anyone that he's the Christ as long as they're not completely understanding. They're not seeing clearly what it means for him to be the Christ. And once he's up on the cross, then people can clearly see. Then the Roman centurion is able to look up and say, surely this is the Son of God. Because that's in some ways when someone finally understands in its fullness exactly what it means for Jesus to say, I am the Christ. That's when the whole world can be told about it, when he has been raised up in his fullness. That, to me, that, that's, that's the connection, uh, one of the connections that we should, should see here. A couple quick thoughts. Do you think that there's any logic or reasoning that could be backed in Jesus had a bunch of things that he was supposed to fulfill to show that he was the Messiah And so would it make sense that he's not wanting to go and proclaim these things until those things have been fulfilled? The other thing that I was hoping you guys would speak your mind uh, regarding is Jesus told people not to tell anyone about what had happened or that he was the Messiah. And the result was they immediately went and, and completely defied or disobeyed him. Obviously, Jesus being God... He knows that that's going to happen, so why bother making the request? Yeah, so we've kind of outlined three different theories uh, that are all positive in some ways. Stephen's original theory that he brought up was the idea that 
Jesus doesn't want, he basically, he doesn't want the attention from identifying himself as the Christ so that he can go off and rest. Um, and there's, yeah, there's a whole nother discussion on why Jesus does that. Michael brought up the theory that he doesn't want people proclaiming this because they don't fully understand what they're saying, as we see in the case of Peter. And we, it's not finally, it's not fully understood until the centurion at, uh, at Jesus' death. And then Stephen brought up uh, the third theory, what I like to call the first grader theory. Um, not because <laughs> a first grader would come up with it, but because it's the idea that when you tell a child not to do something, they will um, inevitably try to do that very thing. That's how I had it first explained to me. Um, and so you have these three that are kind of positive theories, but I think it's worth, uh, just for our listeners' sake, though I think the three of us would reject it, is bringing back up why this theory, the Messianic Secret, why that title was originally coined by William Reed, which we mentioned earlier. When Reed originally put forward this idea like, hey, if you look in Mark, you'll see this trend. He was trying to make the case that this actually implied that Mark was written to explain that Christians thought that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ, when Jesus actually never said that he was the Messiah or Christ. Um, And this theory was basically saying, Jesus didn't think he was, but later people said he was. And so Mark is this book that's trying to explain why that development happened. It's trying to make Jesus appear like he is special in some way, even though in reality he wasn't. So it's this sort of negative view about Christianity and its origins. There's another part to uh, when Reed presented this, uh, his theory or ideas is that he was making it out to be that Mark was um, not necessarily historical, but just, I think that's what you're getting at. It's a theological interpretation of the life of Jesus, and that the people that found out that he was the Messiah, he did not want to, uh, uh, Reed was saying that Jesus, like you said, did not explicitly say that he was the Messiah. So when somebody had that revelation, he was like, okay, I told you, but don't tell anybody else. I guess you could kind of compare it in a different way of a a child that finds out the secret. All right, all right, you found out that Santa Claus isn't real. Don't go and tell anybody else or you're going to spoil it for everybody when I come back from the dead. Um, Does that mean we have to put a spoiler alert on this podcast, like at the beginning, like don't listen to this podcast (laughs) with your children? Well, (laughs) If there's, you know, in the early days of their Sunday school curriculum, then, yeah, it might be safe to make that disclaimer. <laughs> it's really impressive how uh, easily the Israelites and people of that time are identified with small children. Um, but, yeah, Stephen, you're, you're right. I was actually saying it a little bit differently, but it's been a while since I read about this, um, so I, I may be incorrect. In, in either case, though, what needs to be pointed out is that Reed said that this theory works best when Mark, as a gospel, is being written after uh, the other gospels, mainly Luke and Matthew, because Mark is trying to come in and fix this inconsistency. So it's this later gospel. But as Reed eventually acknowledged himself, the scholarly field, uh, biblical scholars have 
almost universal agreement in that Mark is actually the earliest gospel written. Right, right. Um, and so because of that, his theory for why Mark would contain this messianic secret is sort of debunked. It doesn't work as he intended it to work. And so because of that, I, all that is basically wheel spinning because I think because Reed's original theory doesn't really work, I think it's worth looking at these other theories that have been brought up, what uh, Michael brought up and the two that Stephen mentioned. I would, I like Michael's a lot. There's a lot of theological value to that. Um, though I do think there's also some weight to the first thing that you brought up, Stephen, about Jesus wanting to rest. I mean, in Mark chapter 1, Right after the story, or right after the verses that we read, Mark chapter 1 has the the number one example of Jesus going away. And then the apostles come to him, and they ask, uh, Jesus, there, there are people who want to be healed. They want to see you. Why did you go? And he said, I have I had to go be my myself. I am not here to heal, but I'm here to preach. So I think there's a lot of credence to that idea. Yeah, and... Uh... Mark 9 as well, where we see the transfiguration, that one specifically supports the case where the apostles or the 12 that were with him, or I, I can't remember who all was with him at the time, but those who witnessed the transfiguration, they then knew that he was the Christ. It had been revealed to them. It wasn't necessarily a revelation, I would say, as far as, because they, they were witnesses. But he specifically told them as they were coming down from the mountain, do not tell anyone what you have seen. Basically, don't spoil the story for everybody else, because you know what's going to happen. But again, uh, there are several examples uh, throughout the Gospels that show that the apostles still didn't understand what was going to happen as far as the death and resurrection part, especially the death part. The issue, there's several, I say several, uh, two or three examples where the apostles don't understand that he must lay down his life and die. And, and we should make the point fairly clear that when he is raised from the dead, both in uh, Matthew chapter 28, Mark 16, uh, Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, go and tell everyone. He gives them explicit instructions that now is the time to tell. So we, we shouldn't allow any of the theories uh, make us think that there wasn't going to be a time to tell people. That, that has to be a part of whatever the messianic secret is, is that the messianic secret ends. The fact that it ends is, I think, just as important as the fact that it ever existed. Yeah, that's sort of the, the impetus of the, the gospel is there was this secret. Now go and share it. I This is a little bit off topic. I, I don't think that the ending of Mark is original to the gospel. That's... The, the section, yeah, chapter 16, that section that your most of your Bibles probably have broken off a little bit. But... I think it's still it's extremely valuable um, as concluding Mark's message. And if you note. if you like handling snakes, it's also very valuable. Yeah, you you need that sort of uh, spiritual confidence. Oh, I can do this. Um, well, like but, that was that's a reference. I'm not sure how many of our readers are familiar enough with. Mark 16. Our listeners, you mean. We're not transcribing this. Listeners, if you're not familiar with the snake reference, please go read Mark chapter 16, specifically the part after the break in your Bible, 
and you'll see some things that you might not have remembered are there. So that's an encouragement to go read that. <laughs> However, the first eight it verses... definitely shouldn't be there. Right. That said, everything that is theologically valuable from that section you can find in the Gospel of Mark or other places. So you're not, we're not except for the snakes. Except for the snakes, exactly. <laughs> I, I said theologically valuable. Okay. So we're not losing anything. However, I, one of the best sermons I've ever heard, and I've, I've even taught this as a class, comes from this very idea of what if Mark chapter 16 ends at verse 8. And if it does end at verse 8, then it tells a very rich story that, you know, the women go to the tomb and, you know, they see, they see the, the, you know, they see the, the, the stone is rolled away and this glorious figure tells them, didn't you know that he wouldn't be here? He, he is risen. And then that last verse says, and the women went away, told no one or were very afraid and told no one. And it just ends there. And so, it, in some ways, Mark is challenging his the, the way I heard the sermon preached. The, Mark is challenging his audience to say, "Here's how they reacted to the gospel. What will you do?" It, it is challenging the audience to be different from the women, to not be afraid, and to tell people. So, here's another thing to consider: What are some of the disconnections from the rest of Scripture? that the messianic secret would have one that uh, I am at least aware of is that the, the triumphal entry, there's no hiding that the Jews are recognizing as Jesus as the Messiah. And he's, he's not trying to hide it. He is triumphantly entering the city and they are recognizing him saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And so that would really go against the whole idea that, and maybe that's part of it is that the secret is then out. So I think that this actually supports what I was putting forward is that Jesus was not trying to support the bad way of thinking about him, but was hoping to build the case for the for the correct way to think of him as the Christ, you know, the son of God. And so, so when he when he not a nationalistic view of him. Exactly. So when he comes in right riding on the the cult, I think it is. The, the people celebrate him as a nationalistic figure, as a physical savior, when in fact he had to do these things to fulfill prophecy, or I always like to say the prophecy was made because he was going to do it, but that's another thing. When he did it, he, he was showing that he is majestic. He is to be praised, but it's not for the reasons that they thought. So the, the true message of his messiahship was still hidden even though the people thought that they were correctly celebrating. To add on to what you've said, Michael, um, I'd say, and I could be wrong, I don't know if in Mark, after that episode, we see any instances of Jesus telling people to keep the secret. Um, but I would imagine, uh, for the most part, that kind of drops out because, yeah, he embraces it to a degree because he knows within the week, I'll be dead. It's coming to an end where people will finally truly understand what it means for him to be the Christ, which is a savior of sacrifice and as well, the son of God. Yeah. My closing question for us, maybe you have a conclusion, uh, a final thought on this topic of the Messianic secret. But one question I'll put out to y'all is 
how does the messianic secret impact your faith? How should this make us and our our listeners as Christians live differently? What what's our takeaway? I think it's important to know that Jesus had a a rhyme and a reason for the way he went about his the the revelation that he would give to those who were witnesses. Uh, it is important to know that he was completely self-conscious of who he was. It was not something that he figured out, or I think as if Reed was actually saying that Jesus was not aware that he was the Messiah, that cannot be the case, especially when we see the the other Gospels show that Jesus was in the temple courts as a young boy, knowing that he must be about his father's business. This all goes to show that Jesus is fully aware of his call for ministry to fulfill the prophecy and to give up his life and then be raised from the dead to build the temple back in three days. And Mark shows that Jesus is very specific and, if you want to say strategic, about how he went interacting with the people of that time. So I think one of my takeaways from this also goes back to one of the things that we said at the beginning. Daniel, I think I think you were referencing at the beginning of, of the book where it says, where Jesus says, I didn't come to heal, but to preach. That somewhere buried in the secret is this dichotomy of, did Jesus come to do something for my physical body or for my spiritual body. Definitely he came to change both. But it seems that at the heart of Jesus's ministry is that he wants to cha- he wants control of my life of all of my life, but that has to be at the spiritual core of who I am. He's looking for spiritual change in me. And not until I can fully grasp that secret that Jesus is who he says he is can I fully grasp or enjoy uh, the the abundant life that Jesus has prepared for me. So so that's part of the secret is that I don't get all of him uh, until he gets all of me. Yeah. I think those are two really valuable theological insights. On a slightly more superficial level, I think the messianic secret is valuable um, for how we understand the Bible. Um, and whenever we're doing, we're doing our personal study of Scripture, and we're trying to understand um, the text, that we see that there are these themes that the gospel writers are trying to bring up to highlight these different aspects of Christ. And this is one of the more, um, in some ways, dramatic uh, themes that we see in the Gospel of Mark, this idea of this messianic secret that gets traced all throughout has this climactic conclusion that we talked about with the triumphal entry and eventually the death of Christ and the confession of the Roman centurion. And I think the Messianic Seeker is one of those entry-level themes that we can begin to pick up on and see the the art and the beauty of these gospel writers. That's well said. That's all the time we have for our podcast today. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave a review and uh, tell us what you think. And we all always appreciate any comments that we get. Thanks for listening.